All right, let's open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. As I mentioned last week, uh, probably next Sunday, we will start the book of Acts. So we will march our way through a very uh, historical book of the birth and the building of Christ's church. And I think it's very appropriate, again, for the atmosphere in which we live in today, where there is an identity crisis in the church. I think there's an identity crisis in the pew. We have an identity crisis. I have an identity crisis. You have an identity crisis, as well as the collective body of us have an identity crisis. I would say the crisis is seen when you go to a Christian bookstore and it's seen in the multitude of books, not in the rarity of books. The multitude of books on how to do church. What is the church? A multitude of books on what is the Christian life. I think it it points not to a sign of health, but it points to spiritual disease. And you're like, wow, Jeff. Well, we're going to look at that in Acts and we'll see what what we come up with. Okay, but today we are continuing to look at Ephesians and we will wrap up Ephesians. Uh, I was up in Dallas this past weekend. And I was at church leadership meetings in our denomination. So I was one with had to deal with campus ministries, another one with theological examinations and the other, which is the second court in Presbyterianism, which is the North Texas Presbytery. Those of you that are grasping Presbyterianism, there's three courts. There's the court of the elders here called the session local. Then you move to all these elders that are in a local church. In a region, those guys go to what's called a presbytery and do the business of the church there. And then once a year, all these presbyteries go to what's called the General Assembly. So there's three courts because we believe that the scriptures teach of a a connected nature of God's church. Okay, so I'm up at these meetings and it's at the campus meeting that I learned of a church planter I I knew from afar uh, who God was using tremendously in a southeastern city to start a church, to build a church, to reach people for Christ. And I heard that he had just walked away from the ministry. And I turned to this older man in the faith who was in this meeting and I said, why did he do that? And he looked at me and said, because he just walked away from his wife and three kids. And I said, no, I can't be. I said, you've got to be kidding me. That doesn't make any sense to me. I said, didn't doesn't he have anybody, any friends that would talk some gospel sense into him? And if need be, take him out back to the spiritual woodshed. I mean, and this older man looked at me and he says, I um, we've done that. I said, well, what happened? Why? And he said, this is what he told us. I want to be happy. How does a gospel-driven pastor in a gospel-driven church get to that point where he actually thinks being happy is destroying four lives? According to Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 20, the answer is you get there by dropping one article of armor at a time. And we need to all hear this together. We are not above doing what he did. Please stand for the reading of God's word. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Father, you are king, mighty in majesty, and mighty in mercy. And because you are both, Lord, you are to be feared, you are to be trusted. We ask right now that you would cause your word to do its work. And that it would open our eyes to see the glories of Christ and your word would open our hearts to trust him and rest in him alone. And that your word would speak to us, that your word would be the sword in the spirit's hands to do the redeeming, transforming, putting back together work that we all desperately need. And so, Lord, would you identify things in our lives that need to be identified in terms of where Flaming arrows have found exposed flesh and are starting to burn. Oh, Lord, would you grant that so that the shield of faith may be lifted? Would you grant us all to grow in arming ourselves in the gospel? Would you do this for Christ's sake and for the good of your people, the good of your church, the good of husbands and wives and the good of families and the good of a community? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here's what we've been doing. I want you to get your bearings and you need a map of what we've been doing in Ephesians. In this brief series that we've been looking at in Ephesians chapter 6, we looked at the first sermon with what is the, the point of the passage. And the point of the passage is this life is war. All throughout that passage we just looked at, you can, you can see the, the blood and guts on the page. Can you not? This life is war. It's a serious business. And that main point, this life is war, points to the target in the text that needs the grace of God. As we are growing in hearing the word preached, the other side of the coin is growing in how to read the word for yourself. And what I want us all to see is that every passage has a target or a heart. And it's us. And it's that part in that passage that needs the grace of God. And so the main point of this 
passage we've been looking at is the target of God's grace, which is this life is war. It's serious business. The second sermon, we went in and said, okay, if this life is war, what is God's goal for you in this war? Is God's goal for you to advance and attack and take on Frank Peretti's demonology, theology, and get after it and start addressing these spirits and going into these areas and strapping it to them and putting it to them? Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that God's goal for you? And we saw in the second sermon, the goal for us is in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that in order, that purpose, goal, and that you may be able to stand. Down to verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that and goal, you may be able to stand. So God's goal for us in this life being war is standing. Holding your ground. Not advancing. Standing. Now, standing or holding your ground is the goal because you're standing or holding your ground on territory already won. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord, the strength of his might. That word might is not just a a happenstance word. It's already been used in Ephesians in chapter 1. It's the might in chapter 1 that was used to express God's power in rising Jesus from the dead. So the might of God is the resurrecting power of God and placing Jesus as over all things. And so Jesus' victory, Jesus' justification, Jesus' exaltation, Jesus' accomplished salvation is the territory, the ground that he plants you in and he says, stand there. In this war, stand there. That's your goal. Okay. now now our third and fourth sermon has been looking at how do you stand there? And the particulars in this passage is, is it gives you these articles of armor. And so the first well, last week, we looked at the first three articles. This week, we're looking at the next three. Okay. so the long answer is this. How do you stand? The long answer is you stand by receiving grace from the finished work of Christ. That's the long answer. The short answer is in picture. The short answer here is in the armor of God. The short answer is the way you stand is by arming yourself with the gospel. All right. So now let's look at the next three articles of the armor. Everybody should be with me now. All right. Now, Alice had never known a day she has not known and trusted Jesus. What an incredible blessing. What an incredible blessing for your kids, college students that know Jesus, that when you have children, Lord willing, they will never know a day they don't know Jesus. Now, for some of you who have had children and for some of us that might have come to faith later in life and had children, you got to think of yourselves as the first guys that hit the beach on D-Day. You're the first generation. God got a hold of you. He's changing you, but there's a whole army coming behind you that will land on this beach that you got bloodied and bruised on. And that's your role. And think of the generations that come behind you. Okay, so do not say, well, it didn't happen to me or good night. I didn't come to know Jesus till I was 60. Or my children are grown. and I feel like a massive failure. We need to get deeper into the realities of God's grace for us, okay? 
Now, she's 35, mother of three children, and her husband, Dan, they possibly have thought that the Lord might continue to bless them with more children. And they're, Lord willing, willing to do that or be made willing. Now, her husband, Dan, is a godly man. He's a leader in the home. He's a leader in the church, and he's a successful entrepreneur. They talk about being missionaries when they get on to the later seasons of their life. They've talked about having freed up time within their own self-supporting resources to be sent out by their church and be missionaries. They sincerely, even now, pursue ways to be used of the Lord and his redeeming work in each other's lives, in their marriage, in their family, in their church, and in their community, in their workplace, wherever the Lord has them. They're not program-driven. They're not method-driven. They're not full-time Christian work-driven. They, they actually believe there was a time in Christianity when it wasn't left up to the super saint specialists. The super saint specialists that have come in and have told us this is what a successful Christian life is. And it's everything outside of the gospel and church. And they're, they're not buying into that. They haven't bought into that. They believe that it's about real people, common, ordinary people that live their life before God, wherever God has them. Right. Real stuff, stuff that we can talk about, stuff that we can identify with. Right now, then Dan's business got in the crossfires of a corporation that had an evil agenda. And they lost everything. And all of a sudden, their lives were thrown into chaos, uncertainty, a desperation they have never, ever felt, a pain and an ache they have never, ever felt. The dreams for their children, for their family, for their future, for self-supporting missionary work crumbling right before their eyes. And it's not because they're like, we're not financially secure. And it's not because they're grasping their material possessions as they're being carried out the door of their house. And as they leave their house, as they lose everything, it's not because of that. It's because of healthy desires to want to be used by the Lord, to provide for their family, to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And they got in the crosshairs of an evil agenda and they lose everything. Their whole lives are turned upside down, even with their church surrounding them and their friends rallying to them and church coming around them. Alice feels this despair of being all alone. But the worst part of all is Alice looks in her husband's eyes and she sees a man that is struggling to provide and protect her family, their family, his family. While someone tries to take him out. And she sees the look in his eyes as he struggles and he fights with the demons of personal failure at the hands of someone who's out to get him. As he carries the weight and the responsibility of his children, the weight and the responsibility of providing, the weight and the responsibility of protecting. And she watches as his knees start buckling underneath him. And her heart shatters into pieces upon pieces. And it's probably somewhere around there that it started. These powerful emotions. These powerful emotions and these 
incredible suggestive thoughts began to pierce her. And wherever they pierced her, they started to burn in her. And so much so she began to say stuff like, God, why would you allow this to happen to us? How could you do this? I mean, God, you're what kind of father can you be when you stand and watch your children get brutalized right before your eyes? What kind of father does that? Where's the hope, God? Where's the grace, God? Where's the peace, God? Our lives are lost. We can't take it anymore. If you're not going to take care of us, we're going to have to take care of ourselves. What happened to Alice? The Spartans have an oath-like code of honor. They did. Many in their tradition, warrior tradition, have that same code. If you were to look up the SEAL's philosophy, it's pretty much in line with it. They had this, war, this oath-like code, and when they said it, it was binding. They would all say it out loud, and it was like binding to them. It became a part of their character. It was internalized in them. Every time they said it, it was like they were raising their hand and saying, I believe this, and I bind myself to this. And it was ingrained in them ever since they were seven-year-old little boys when they were taking from their mommies to be men in warrior school at seven years old. And the code went like this. Come home with your shield or on it. Alice dropped her shield. Verse 16. Let's look at verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Flaming darts of the evil one do two things. It's a picture borrowed from ancient warfare around the time of the Spartans, around that time in the Persian, Greco, and eventually Roman uh, world. It would do two things. This flaming dart, it could be a spear, a javelin, could be an arrow. It would find the open spot. It would hit the flesh, and wherever it pierced, it would catch on fire and burn. That was its purpose. And... The Lord takes that image to describe this war and how it is a constant launching of the evil one and his flaming darts at you and at me. And it strikes the flesh. It pierces the flesh. It pierces the mind. It pierces the heart. And then it starts catching on fire. Right. And that's what happened to Alice. Uh, Do not miss. I want you to look here. Do not miss the places you are supposed to carry your shield. I mean, that little phrase right at the beginning of verse 16, what does it say? In all circumstances. Okay, you mean um, when I'm lying at bed at night and sleep is escaping me and my mind won't let me rest. In all circumstances, raise your shield. You mean when I'm in the midst of relational conflict in all circumstances, raise your shield. You mean when someone gives me a tongue lashing in all circumstances, raise your shield. 
You mean when my kids and I'm having a hard time with my kids or in in church and fractured relationships or when I get bad news and evil's done to me in all circumstances. Raise your shield. In all circumstances, we're called here to carry our shield because we're to remember that the fiery darts are happening all the time. And I think sometimes part of the immediate applications here is we don't realize that. We've got the shield, maybe, but it's on our back and we're whistling and walking around and don't realize that we're getting shot at all the time. And it takes maybe that perfect opportunity for an evil agenda to come our way. And it just provides that wonderful opportunity to get stuck and for the fire to burn. Okay, now the Roman legions. Legionnaire's shield was a rectangular shield and it was like a door. And so they had two types. They had the the Spartans had that round one and that was for the close in fighting. But when they would see the the hordes running at them and they were holding their line on territory they were keeping, they had these door like rectangle shields. And the center of the shield was this iron boss. And that iron boss would take the blows of rocks and take the blows of spears and arrows and they would hit and shatter and just harmlessly break off around the outside of the shield was iron. So when they would plant it into the ground and they would hold the shield and that's where they they withstood the flaming darts that came their way. The Roman soldier stood his ground because he hid behind his shield. And Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, the only way that you're going to stand your ground is to hide behind your shield that consists of faith. So his call is this. You are to trust God, and I am to trust God no matter what, in all circumstances. There's not a, a spot in that all circumstances that says not to trust God there. Heartaches and happinesses. The shield. All right? Now... You hear that and I hear that, right? And we say, okay, okay. All right, I'm motivated now. I'm ready to go. Boom! I plant it in the ground. I hold it up. The shield consists of faith. Trust God in all circumstances. Now, now, who am I trusting? And what am I trusting Him for? Joe, what are we doing here? I got my shield. You got your shield. But what is this shield? What's the consistency of this shield? What's this shield trust in? And now we move to the next armor. It's all logically, it's all intentionally included, and they all kind of overlap each other. And I want you to see the specific content of faith, the specific things you are to trust God about and, and for is found in the next article, which is the helmet of salvation. Look at that, verse 17a. Now, and take up the helmet of salvation... And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we have the shield leading to the helmet. Now, what's happening here? Well, let's do it. Look at it this way. What happens when exhortations and uh, let's say this. If you have exhortation driven messages, if you talk to yourself and it's mostly exhortations, trust God, trust God, trust God. You have dominating speech to others, to your children. Trust God, trust God, trust God. Like, for instance, trust God, sister. You tell a struggling fellow believer, right? Or how about this? Let go and let God, we tell ourselves. Or how about this? 
Daughter, what's wrong with you? You're looking at your child. What's wrong with you? Trust God. Stop doing that. Right? Open the door of your heart to Jesus, we tell our unbelieving neighbors. Then we say things like this. Make Jesus Lord. You know, we get to our own system of sanctification and we say, look, make Jesus Lord. You know, you you just need a, a second work of the Holy Spirit. Or is it up to three now? I'm losing count. Four? You guys might know better than I do. Exchange, do this, do that. We got exhortations, exhortations, exhortations. And what happens in exhortation dominated conversations is Jesus becomes a missing person. Trust him, trust him, trust him, we say to ourselves. Hang the shield. I'm trusting him. I've got my shield up. Trust him, trust him, trust him. And the issue is, who is he? That I may trust him. Who is he? This is where the helmet of salvation comes in because the helmet of salvation gives you the missing person. The helmet of salvation gives you the object of your trust. You see, the issue of exhortation or response driven messages is that they're faith and faith messages. You know what that means? Regardless of the theology, jokingly, facetiously, seriously said, Second baptisms of the Holy Spirit. That's some folks view of how you grow in the Christian life. That's a theology, right? If we talk about a theology of life change, you can have your faith in your faith. It's like a magician reaching into the hat and instead of pulling out the the bunny, he pulls out his own hand. The point of faith is to actually point to someone else. It's to point to a missing person. It's to be trusting in a person. And so the helmet of salvation gives us that. And the helmet of salvation is a picture that's taken from Isaiah. Here's the picture. Here's the person. Don't miss the person. So you're on the front lines. You know you need to trust God in all circumstances. We want to trust God in all circumstances. Unfortunately, all we do is tell each other to trust God in all circumstances. And all we do is write books on how to trust God in all circumstances. And everybody's saying, who is he? Who is he that I trust? And so we need to know who he is, and the helmet of salvation gives it to us. Here's the picture. Israel's lost. They're lost. And I want you to listen to their lostness. This is in Israel's own words. They say this. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. We look for brightness, but behold, gloom. We grope the wall like a blind man. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon, which is when? When the sun's at its highest, but the text says we stumble at noon as if it's twilight. We're among those full of vigor, full of energy, but we're like dead men. And then the question is why? And as the Isaiah goes through, the answer is why are we lost like this? For our transgressions are multiplied before us. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities. And then here's the key word. Salvation is far from us. Salvation is so far away. We're lost. And then here's the picture in the text. The Lord is watching this. He's watching the Israelites say this. That's the picture in Isaiah. He's watching it, and the text says 
he starts looking for someone to do something about it. And he says, who is there that can go and intercede for Israel? Who can save them? And the text says he looks and he finds none. And then he stands up and says, I will do it. And the first thing he does when he stands up is he puts something on his head. The helmet of salvation. And Paul says, do you see that? When you're putting on the helmet of salvation, you're getting the missing person that you're to lift your shield and trust. Because the helmet of salvation is an accomplished salvation. It's something God alone does. No one else could. Israel couldn't save themselves. We can't save ourselves. Your wife can't save you. Your child can't save you. Your girlfriend can't save you. Your friends can't save you. Your counselor can't save you. Only God alone can. And not only that, the text says, He does. It's done. Right? And so we have that helmet that we're to put on. All the biblical words that show the finer points of the helmet of salvation. I'm not going to give you ten mini-sermons here, but I want you to know what these finer words, these finer points that describe this helmet of salvation that are throughout the Scriptures. They're words that need to be known today and they need to be Seen and they need to be savored today. Words like propitiation. What? Words like justification. Who? Words like reconciliation. Words like redemption. Words like glorification. Words like sanctification. You're a definitive sanctification and a progressive sanctification. All these words are like jewels in the helmet of salvation. And the point of the helmet of salvation is when you hear these, these words, they're loaded with the missing person. And not just that. It's not that they give you a content like you're at your class and you can talk all about him and discuss the finer points of the missing person. These words, this helmet, is described as the power of God for your salvation. And so when you start hearing and dissecting and unpacking a word like propitiation, it's God's power. And he pushes the person into your life. And now you trust Him. And so the answer is, trust Him, trust Him, trust Him. It's part of it. The answer is, first you spend 99.9% of your conversations to yourself and to each other and to your children and to your unbelieving neighbor and to your friend and to your struggling friend who's a believer, you spend 99.9% of your time talking about the King, the Savior, the accomplished salvation, the missing person. And then, and then, the last word, after the glories of Christ are seen, after the, the radiance of the worth and work of Jesus stand forth, as the power of God operates in those messages and the person shows up and power is given, then you say, trust him. But you don't have to really. But you do need to say trust him. Because if we do see him, we will trust him. If the missing person is no longer a missing person, you will worship him. 
You will raise your shield with such strength you can take on the horde all by yourself. All right. Now, we've just, what we've done here is done, we've combined two articles into one thought. Remember, the main point we're looking at is arming yourself with the gospel. How do you stand on territory already won? The particulars are arm yourself with the gospel. Now, we've seen so far you're to you're to take the under armor of the truths of the gospel and put them around you. We've seen that. We've seen that you're to wear the breastplate of righteousness around you. We've seen that. We've seen that you're to take the studded, spiked sandals of the Roman soldier and plant them in the peace of the gospel. We've seen that today. What we've done is we've seen that there's a shield and a helmet. And what that means is you're to arm yourself by trusting in the gospel, trusting shield in the gospel, salvation helmet. Okay. now you've got to ask yourself, as I asked myself working through this passage, well, that's good. This is good stuff. Am I just do I just gut it out? You know, trust, trust, believe, believe, Jesus, you're this, you're that. What do you do? How, where does the strength come to actually stand? Where does the strength come to actually believe this stuff? I mean, so it's real. Where does it come? And it's in the next article, and that's what we're going to end on. I want you to see that spiritual heroes, yes, they do stand, don't they? That's what we're looking at. A spiritual hero stands. A spiritual hero holds their ground on territory Already won. That's what a spiritual hero does. But a spiritual hero does get bloody. A spiritual hero does get beat up. A spiritual hero does fall down. A spiritual hero struggles to get back up and stand up. A spiritual hero trusts God when it hurts and serves God when it's inconvenient and loves the unlovely. And doesn't respond when he gets trashed. Yeah. But how in the world do you do that? The last article is this. And I want you to see it in big picture. Then we'll move down into small picture. Look at verse 10. Don't miss this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord is what's called a divine passive. Uh, those of you that are visiting with us, you'll realize I am a Greek geek. I love grammar. And so the way I encourage you in that to love grammar with me is to tell you that God is in the grammar. And I want to prove it to you. It's called a divine passive. You know what a passive voice means? Passive means the subject is being acted upon. Passive. If it was active, it would mean the subject's what? Doing the action. Look at that. You got it. All right. Passive. Subject's being acted upon. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might is be strong in being acted upon by God. The way in which you actually begin to lift the armor, the way you actually begin to arm yourself, it doesn't come from you. It comes from God, that God himself actually acts upon you. God himself actually strengthens you. God himself actually opens your eyes. God himself actually works into your heart and transforms you. God himself actually starts putting you back together. And how does he do it? The last article, go down to verse 17. The helmet of salvation and the what? Sword of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is how God acts upon you. Now, most of us here get that. 
We've heard Holy Spirit a lot if we're in church, hopefully. And we know that, you know, we hear messages like, yeah, I know I'm to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, walk with the Spirit. I get that. So I'm strengthened by God acting on me and the power of His Spirit. But how, how does He do that? Do I, do I just go out into the field out here and go like this? Ah! Do I go up to Toronto and start laughing? Do I go down to Florida and get the dust? How does that happen? How does it happen? And the answer is the last part of this. It says, take up the helmet, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. There we go. The spirit's sword is the word of God. So the spirit fills you when the word fills you. So the spirit and the word go hand in hand. And so to be strengthened is to have the Word dwelling in you and the Spirit strengthens you with it. One theologian described it this way. One pastor put it this way. The Word is like a sponge. The Word of God is like a sponge saturated with the Holy Spirit. And so as you read the Word, study the Word, hear the Word preached, talk to about the word with each other, God squeezes it. And the Holy Spirit is squeezed on you through the word of God. And it saturates you. It gets you wet. It soaks you. It starts renewing your mind. It starts strengthening and working in your heart. And you actually begin to have energy to trust. And you start to will and to act for his good purpose and Things that once looked foolish start looking beautiful. And things that that once looked like they were your cherished friend become ugly to you. It's that's the way it works. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit is actually be filled with the word of God. It's to have the, the Holy Spirit squeezed out on you through the word of God, which is like a sponge. Now, let's end by going back to the pastor. Let's go back to the runaway pastor. We started that. Let's go back to you and me and let's put ourselves in that position. You know, you don't just get to the point where you say, I want to be happy and you walk out on four lives. So something happened along the way. Armor started dropping along the way. Something started happening. And, and you and I could be in similar situations right now. We're in this life is war. So what do we do? What happens? You're battered. Let's say right now you're battered and bruised. Let's say that your your under armor is soaked with sweat and it's torn in so many places. Your breastplate has been hit with so many heavy blows. It's it's dented. It's it's misshaped. It's bent in and it sticks and it's very uncomfortable. Let's say your feet are slipping and sliding. Your spikes have broken off on your sandals. Let's say your shield of faith has gotten very, very heavy, extremely heavy. You're self-conscious about it now. This is heavy. Let's say your helmet of salvation is very hot and uncomfortable. And let's say the nose piece is broken off and your head's ringing. Flaming arrows are starting to hit exposed flesh. And they're starting to burn where they're hitting. 
and your knees are starting to buckle. Could have been just being overworked. You know, burning 24-7. That might be the opportunity. Could be a counselee that came in. Could be a lot of things, couldn't it? Stress, loss of loved ones, lots of things can happen. What are you going to do? The text here says, grab the Spirit's sword. This is the one that puts it all together. As you grab the Spirit's sword, which is the Word of God, strength starts seeping into your under armor. And your breastplate of righteousness starts pushing out the bumps and the dents. And your feet start digging deeper into the peace of the gospel. And the shield of faith gets energized because an accomplished salvation sits on your head. And you arm yourself with the gospel. And then you take the next step and stand. And then you defling that arrow. Aha, I see that one coming. Now you start seeing them coming. It's amazing when that happens. First, you don't see them. Calvin says no one sees the arrows until it sticks. But when you are armed, you'll start seeing them. Oh, I see what you're doing. Ching. Right. Yes. Thank you for beautiful women. Ching. Right. Just lift up the shield. So, brothers and sisters, the final exhortation here is in light of who he is and what he's done. Grab the sword of the spirit. Arm yourself with the gospel. Amen.